Lincoln's second inaugural address, given in 1865, a month before the South surrendered, and a little more than a month before he would be assassinated, is short. It's less than two pages. It's a short rhetorical masterpiece. In its tone, it's humble and gracious. It's wise and conciliatory. It's sophisticated. He recognizes the war as a judgment on both sides. And he seeks to begin the healing process with malice toward none, with charity for all. Well, Samuel acknowledges the judgment of God on his nation in this address in chapter 12 this morning. Though he's much more ferocious, he's much less generous about the monarchy than Lincoln was toward the vanquished South. Nevertheless, there's something in common. Samuel is also passionately seeking national unity. He's seeking a way forward after a nationwide debacle. The debacle of rejecting the Lord and insisting on a king like the nation's. He, too, like Lincoln, is seeking to bind up the nation's wounds. Now, we saw last time that there was already a public installation of Saul. Samuel presided over that ceremony, and he gave an inaugural address there, where he addressed the people quite sharply, and he bound the king to the law, the rights and duties of kingship. And what happened after that text, and before our text this morning was that Saul wins this military battle against the Ammonites. The people gather to renew the kingdom at Gilgal, and this speech takes place there. And thus, this is the second time that Samuel has given an inaugural address on behalf of Saul. So we'll make the four points that are in the back inside page of the bulletin. The back inside page, Samuel vindicated, the Lord vindicated Israel on trial, and then Samuel's intercession. The heart of this is is the trial, but there's some preludes that have to happen. The first thing is Samuel's vindication. He summarizes bluntly, without any enthusiasm, you wanted a king, I set a king over you. Now you have your king. As for me, I'm old and gray. My sons are before you. So Samuel is, in a sense, retiring here as a judge. He'll remain as a prophet, but he's no longer going to be the military and political leader of Israel. The nation has a king now. So there's a changing of the guard here. And Samuel's not one to thank everyone and to reminisce about his many years of service as a judge. Instead, he instigates a trial. He becomes the defendant in the trial, though. And he says to the nation, you can be my prosecutors. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and notice this and his anointed. In other words, do it with your king. Do it with Saul sitting right here. The king you wanted and you now have. I want the new king. I want him to see what public integrity looks like. 
So he asks a bunch of questions. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Whom have I defrauded? What bribes have I taken? He puts his record as a leader, his moral integrity on trial in public, and they reply, you have not cheated anyone or oppressed us or taken a bribe. And they seal it with an oath. And this little episode is the necessary prelude to the trial of Israel because now the defendant, Samuel, his character vindicated by the accused, Israel, Samuel will turn around and become the prosecutor. And that brings me to the second point here. And this is also a prelude to the trial. Namely, here the Lord is vindicated. Samuel rehearses this history of Israel beginning in verse 6 in the text. And it's, again, like everything with Samuel and the monarchy, this is an adversarial, hostile rehearsal of the sovereign Lord's goodness in the face of Israel's forgetfulness and her infidelity. He says, now then, stand here, because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts that the Lord performed for you and for your ancestors. And he gives this history. They, they went down into Egypt, and the Lord sent Moses to deliver them. He moves forward closer to their time, to the time of the judges. A time very fondly remembered by Samuel in many ways, because he's the last great judge. They forget the Lord. You all know the pattern, right? They're sold into the hands of an enemy power. They realize their sin. They cry out to the Lord. He delivers them, and the whole process starts over again. And he lists some judges by name in there in the text, including himself as the last judge. And he says, look, through these judges, God delivered you from the hands of your enemies. You lived in safety. What's the point of the history lesson? The point is this, in Samuel's mind, clearly history teaches that this is all that's needed. Cry out to God, trust him, he will raise up a judge. A king, a king, Samuel's insistent, even at this late hour, that a king is not actually necessary. That it entails a rejection of Yahweh and it isn't needed. And so he says, history shows that the Lord is righteous, that he's faithful to his promises. And so I'm vindicated And the Lord is vindicated. And then he puts Israel on trial. And his narration jumps up right to the present contemporary events in verse 12. He says, you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you. This, This is the threat that Saul just defeated in the previous chapter, this military threat. It was that threat. We didn't know this until now, but it was that threat from this Ammonite king that provoked them to say, all the way back in chapter 8, no, we want a king. We need a king. Even though Samuel reminds them yet again, the Lord God was your king. So again, to be clear, the monarchy is a rejection of the Lord as king. Not the form of government per se, right? but Israel's idolatrous motivation behind the monarchy. They went, as one commentator put it, from in God we trust to a king or bust. So they've got this current threat. And what happened was when the the military threat was, was close enough and real enough, they essentially had a case of national amnesia. They panicked. They panicked. They forgot the history that Samuel rehearsed. 
And then they specified the means by which God must deliver them. I mean, don't we often do the same sorts of things in crisis? We question, we really question whether the past is relevant, whether God can act to save us. We sink into a kind of private despair. We refuse to take comfort from the righteous acts of God in redemptive history. They seem impotent in the face of the current world alignment, the current situation. And so we pretty much tell him, like Israel did, look, if you're going to show your righteousness this time, you need to do it this way. I mean, that's really Israel's sin, right? It's, it's, we need to be saved, God, and here's how you should save us. Give us a king. You know, there's a lesson here for the way we pray. We should pray about ends, not means. Leave the means up to God. Right? We, we're really about ends, right? The end is God's own glory, the advancement of his kingdom, the conformity of us into his image, the enlargement of our hearts in the Catholicity and the beauty and the grace of the gospel. These are ends for which we should pray, but we're always praying for means. We need this thing to happen and that thing to happen and do this thing and do that thing. And Israel fell into the same sort of thing, and it actually becomes a kind of idolatrous way of praying. So Israel has sunk into this kind of faithless national despair, this malaise, dictating to God what he needs to do. Now remember, it's easy to forget this when Samuel's around. Saul is supposed to be the honored guest at this little affair. And here's Samuel's sarcastic introduction of the king, who has just come off a military victory, mind you. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. It's not exactly a rousing endorsement. I mean, Saul is tall, and he's good-looking. You can imagine Samuel thinking this, but he is not the Lord God Almighty. Right? This is a pitiful exchange of kings that you've engaged in. And you'll recall that Samuel bound the king to the Torah, the rights and duties of kingship. We looked at that last week. But he does the same thing here, but he does it in even more forceful language. He does it in if-then language. This is the language of the covenant. If-then language. If you obey, then you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then the curses of the covenant will fall on you. And he binds the king and the nation together under one covenant. Verse 14 shows you this. If the people and the king follow the Lord, good. If not, we learn later, they will both perish. Covenant blessings for obedience, covenant sanctions or curses for disobedience. So, God has been gracious, in other words, Samuel says. That's the point of the history. Therefore, keep the law, the Torah. Right? Grace always comes first. God's mercy always comes first. And because God has been good, we keep the Torah. And the Torah is really viewed, law is, is one way of translating it, but it really is wise parental guidance from God for your flourishing. If not, Samuel says, if you don't do this, you and the king. You and the monarchy will be swept away. And then to make, make this threat plain, to sort of underscore the divine verdict on their wanting this king, Samuel provides a sign. 
it's kind of uh, an overpowering sort of sign. He calls for thunder, and he calls for rain, which is a virtual impossibility because they're in the wheat harvest, the text tells you. So it's the beginning of the dry season. It would be like snow in June for us. Like maybe not absolutely, totally impossible, but quite remarkable. And this thunder then is how Yahweh feels about their desire for a king. And it says the people stood in awe of the Lord and Samuel, who has really now upstaged the king at his own inaugural. Finally, Samuel's intercession. The people are afraid. They ask Samuel to pray for them so they won't die. And they acknowledge here, this is the first time this has happened in the text. Deeply, the evil that they committed in asking for a king. This is the first time they say it. It took thunder from heaven. The fear of righteous wrath is a kindness. It's a grace which leads to repentance. The severity of God serves his kindness. Right? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. It's an immense kindness and an immense grace and an immense sign of God working in your life to be afraid of him with a clean, holy, enduring fear. It's a grace. And then the surprising light breaks into the text in verse 20. After terrifying them, Samuel says this. Do not be afraid. It's an amazing exhortation. After indicting them and then threatening them with judgment and then calling down a sign of thunder, he says, do not be afraid. It's the same words used by the Lord Jesus Christ later to his own people. Do not be afraid, he says. You've done all this evil, yet don't turn away from the Lord. Serve him with all your heart. He calls for the nation to go forward. It's as if he's saying, look, the evil of seeking this king is not going to be your identity. It's not going to determine your future. So he exhorts them, don't don't turn back to, to worthless idols. They're futile. They're empty things. They can't prosper you. They can't rescue. In other words, even Samuel now is saying, and here he is retiring, he's saying, the monarchy is here to stay. I get that. Don't make an idol out of it. You can survive this disgraceful beginning. God, he says, for the sake of his great name, God who made you his own, will not reject you as his people. And he assures them that he will pray for them. He's no longer a judge, but he's still a prophet, and through prayer a priest. It's a remarkable inauguration. The king is barely visible in the proceedings, but you know what? The gospel is visible here. And I want to close with three ways for us to grasp the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace from this Old Testament law-oriented text. And I'm going to call them the gospel in God, the gospel in Christ, and the gospel in you. So three applications, the gospel in God, the gospel in Christ, the gospel in you. So first, the gospel in God. It It is hard here to 
overestimate the importance of verse 22. Right? Verse 22 says this, For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. In a, in a very deep way, God himself is the good news. He has staked his great name, which means his reputation, his fame, his glory, his very reality as God, his own unsearchable infinite greatness. He has staked his own being, his great name on the success of the covenant, on your success in the covenant. Therefore, Samuel says, you know, this God, with this sovereign, unthoughtable goodwill, he was pleased, Samuel says. Nothing but his good pleasure made you his own. This God who, who is great freely elects and chooses a people, therefore he will have a people. His name, his character as the electing God are at stake. This kind of God, this transcendent, ineffable God, towers over your Israel's repeated failures to keep the covenant and guarantees the future success of the covenant. In other words, Samuel says, this God is not going to start over. He's not going to discard you and take another people. His great name, His great name will prevail against all of your stubborn and entrenched and monstrous evil rooted down there in the human heart. It will prevail against centuries of disobedience. Centuries. This is the root of the gospel. God himself is this God with this name. And it was his eternal delight and good pleasure to choose you as his people. He is the overflowing source of the good news. You cannot detach the gospel from the being of God. I often hear ministers and churches talk about how they want to be a gospel-driven church. And I always think, okay, but you should be a God-magnifying centered church because the triune God is the root and source of the gospel. And so there are, in fact, a lot of Christians who can talk about the gospel, but are not really riveted on the great name of the God who, by his own good pleasure, brings you to himself through that gospel. So that's the gospel in God. Secondly, this is the gospel in Christ. So it's important to see, right, that The people as a whole, in one sense, Israel is a sort of mirror for the human race, a mirror for us. The the people as a whole and all of their kings failed to keep the commands of God. They did not uphold the terms of Samuel's first inaugural address or his second. And God is faithful and just. Right? The, the, The exile came in 586 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians. The curses of the covenant. The text said, you and your king will be swept away. After four centuries of disobedience, Israel and their king was swept away. God was seeking a holy son, 
under a holy king in a holy realm. He's always been seeking that. Adam failed as a son and was expelled from Eden. Israel failed as a son. They were expelled from Canaan. It's going to require then, and the whole narrative story of the Old Testament points to this, it's going to require one who's greater than all the monarchs of Israel. It will require one who himself is faithful Israel. Among the many splendors of the Lord Jesus Christ is that in him, Israel is winnowed down to one man. Jesus then is the obedient king and the obedient nation. Doing for Israel, doing for her kings, doing for you and I what we have failed to do. Keeping the Torah, loving and serving God and his neighbor flawlessly. Right? He's, he's the one who says, it is my food to obey the Father. It's him and him alone who rendered this demanding, deep, personal, total, perpetual, interior and exterior obedience to God. And that is the ground of our hope. Rooted ultimately in the character of the great name of God revealed in Jesus. Remember, Jesus stands up in public. We heard it in the gospel lesson. And he asks his accusers, in a way that Samuel could not. He echoes Samuel's question. Which one of you accuses me of sin? When Samuel stands up there and says, here I am. Who have I defrauded? Who have I cheated? Who have I oppressed? What charges do you want to bring against me? That's a picture of the greater Samuel standing there saying, who of you would like to accuse me of anything? And then he bears the sanctions that we deserve for our law-breaking. As the great hymn puts it, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has, right, this terrifying thunder which made an appearance in this text. And that means that his people, his community, will not lose their tenure in the land, but will possess a new heavens and a new earth. This is how the story ends. Jesus guarantees that even in the teeth of our indifference, and our disobedience, and our idolatry, and our rebellion, there will be a holy people with a holy king in a holy realm. This is the great thing God has done in his righteousness. It's why God does not reject you. And that brings me to my third point here, which is the gospel in you. The gospel in me. So after the thunder from heaven... There's a word of grace in this text. And I think it's a, it's a very encouraging word, especially if you are downcast or despondent. For people who struggle with their own weaknesses and failures, this word is for us. And it's anything but trite. Right? It's anything but trite. It's realistic, but it's full of comfort. So back up for a second. Israel has rebelled. They've committed a grievous sin. They've indulged in outright idolatrous rejection of God who has been good to them. And they are where they are at the end of the ceremony. But there is no going back. Even God has accepted or acquiesced to the situation. And so the word from Samuel is this. Notice, you have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn away from the Lord. Serve him with all your heart. The past cannot be changed. It is what it is. 
Right? We might have some big failures. You might have something that you think is going to define you forever, that hounds you and dogs you. Right? This text is saying, like, look, you think your stuff is the first disastrous sinning that God has seen? He's seen four or 5,000 years of this stuff. God says, look, don't even try because you can't reverse and you can't overrule the past. So stop revisiting it and wallowing in it. You have done all this evil, yet don't turn away from the Lord. Serve him with all your heart. Right? That word is for, is for sinners, is for us. Right? The gospel is most relevant where we are the most sinful and guilty. Otherwise, it's useless. Right? That's what it's designed for. Because it's the revelation of the goodness of God's great name. Where sin abounds. Right there, right on that ground where sin abounds, just at that point where you reject the kingship of God, where you fall into idolatry, where you seek to be like the nations, just at that point does grace all the more abound. So the text says to you, go forward. Go forward. Serve the Lord. Turn away from idols. We learn the hard way that they don't profit. Because of Christ's obedience, sin shall not define you. It shall not master you. So there is here in this text abundant mercy and exceeding grace for your past. And there's fresh strength for today. There's bright hope for tomorrow. This free electing grace that made you a Christian pardons all our grievous faults. That grace keeps us to the end. That grace leads us home. For the sake of God's great name, revealed in his obedient son, he does not, he will not, indeed he cannot, reject you. Amen. Amen.